This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Spruce Mountain, Nevada. You ever heard of it? If you're not from around here, maybe you haven't. My friends and I had heard stories about the mountain all our lives. We had all been friends since high school. After graduation, we had ended up at the UPS warehouse, working second shift. The money was good, the job was pretty simple, and even after work of 10-hour shifts, we still had enough energy to go out to the local pool hall. As soon as we were all old enough to get into adult entertainment clubs, Sue's fantasy club to be exact, we did that too. But we grew bored quickly with the entertainment offered by the city of Elko, and by the time I was 24, I had gotten into hiking. And mostly it was short guided hikes in and around Elko. Nothing spectacularly difficult. Steve and John took up hiking not long after I did, and it didn't take long for us to heckle Ben into joining us. Spruce Mountain came up in a few conversations with some of the others on those guided hikes. I kept hearing about the ghost town up there, all the mines that were mostly caved in now, but that wasn't the best part to me. The best part was when someone would start talking about the ghost lights up there. That's something that had always interested me. No one could ever say for sure what they were. From what I gathered, no one had ever been brave enough to face one of the phantom lights. Everybody ended up too spooked to even try. Every story I heard about the lights ended up the same way. The person or persons who saw the lights had been overwhelmed with an unexplainable fear and paranoia which sent them running in the opposite direction. Now, <laughs> there were as many theories about what the lights were as there were people who had seen them. They were the ghosts of miners still wearing their headlamps or carrying their lanterns and wandering the mountain. Or they were creatures from the depths of the mines, the ones that supposedly protected the loads of lead and silver ore that were mined from the late 1800s up until World War II. These two lines seemed to underlie each theory I heard over the next several months. Now, I didn't believe in ghosts, not much anyway. I had never seen a real one, but I accepted they might exist. My friends felt the same way. We were just a bunch of fence-sitters who couldn't make up their minds what to believe. And over about a dozen conversations at the bar, 
We decided it would be cool to hike up to the ghost town and see some of the mining equipment and buildings before they were gone completely. Steve was going to be married in the fall. John had made arrangements to go to work at a nursing home where his grandmother had recently been admitted. And Ben, well, he wanted to move to California. He was tired of Nevada. And myself, well, I didn't know what I wanted to do with the rest of my life yet. Elko was as good a place as I'd seen. The UPS warehouse job was fine too. Hell, it paid my bills. I had some money in savings, and I was used to the demands of it. I had no real zest to go out and start all over at some new job. But this four-day camping trip might well be the last hurrah we'd have as a group before everybody drifted in their own directions. During the last week of June, we set out. Ben and I in my truck, and Steve riding with John and his... We went to Molly's for breakfast. Molly's Bar and Family Grill in Spring Creek had been one of our favorite spots for years. Food was great, the atmosphere was calm, and the prices were just right. We filed by the statue of the mule deer that dominated part of each entry, each of us patting its side just as we always had, and continued to a pool table in the back. Two teams, one game of nine balls. Losers paid for the food. Ben and I lost, so we footed the bill. We drove on to the borough of land management roads around Spruce Mountain for 11 that morning, and we parked our trucks 20 minutes later. The plan on starting the hike on the eastern side of the mountain and making our way over the summit and down the other side to the ghost town. The BLM roads ran almost to the top, and with our four-wheel drive trucks, we could have driven up and hiked down the other side, but we wanted to spend the four days with boots on the ground, not in trucks. In my opinion, Nevada is hard to beat with its diverse beauty. The mountains are my favorite places. The bottom of Spruce Mountain, covered with juniper and pinyon trees, was tranquil. The breeze was warm as we started up the slope all laughter and excitement. The trees became denser as we hiked, and the breeze cooled. It was the perfect day to go mountaineering, and if our luck held out, the rest of the days would be just as nice. Now meandering towards the top, we took a zigzagging course over soil that became thinner, letting large rocks jut up like knuckle bones of long-dead giants. Swifts dipped and twittered between the pinion trees. The fast-trip hammering of woodpeckers echoed from several directions. It was a surreal mixture of imagination and reality, as my brain insisted on analyzing the stories of ghost miners and creatures from deep in the earth protecting the lead-silver ore. We headed in more northerly direction toward a spot few trees to set up first night's camp. We laid a circle of stones and built a small fire. Sitting around it, we passed around a bag of beef jerky. Shit, <laughs> we thought we were real cowboys or something. But after a couple hours, we decided to toss our sleeping rolls out around the fire and get some sleep. We hadn't brought 
tense. You know, it was all part of the roughing it idea. I mean, laughable now, but at the time, man, we were loving it. And there was nobody around to judge us for our juvenile fantasy trip. I wasn't scared. But long after the guys had fallen to snoring asleep, I was awake, listening to the lonesome, sad calls of owls in the distance. And farther away, the howling of coyotes drifted through the trees like ghostly reminders of danger. I started to think, oh hell, it hadn't been such a good idea to go camping without tents. Images of rattlers and pine snakes hung in my mind, turning every brush of wind against foliage into anaconda-sized nightmares slithering towards me and my sleeping friends. With my nerve lost, I stood, shining my flashlight over the ground, looking for snakes. The coast was clear, but that didn't ease my mind. After adding more deadwood to the dying fire, I opted for standing instead of sitting or lying down again. The stars were winking diamonds in the black velvet of the cloudless moonless sky. Out there, with no city light contamination, faint stars were visible, and it reminded me how tiny and insignificant we are in the grand scheme of the universe. As I picked out familiar constellations, something I hadn't done since my pre-teen years, I finally began to relax. It was a sense of being one with the world, a sense that all things are connected by unseeable threads, reverberating with the eternal memories of the universe. I closed my eyes and let my thoughts ramble, relaxing more with each breath. Then the coyotes fell silent in the distance, and a low hum, barely audible, replaced their howling. I kept my eyes closed, concentrating on the new sound. The sad calls between the two owls stopped, and the hum grew louder. Now, thinking I was on the verge of having a meditative epiphany, I took a deep breath and squeezed my lids tighter against the urge to open them. From behind my lids, a faint light came into being. I smiled. There was my epiphany so close, and I was so aware of its approach. Was this the breakthrough that so many people spoke about? Would this be a life-changing illumination? But the light seemed to dim. I was troubled and tried to will it back, opening my eyes. I did have a life-changing moment. The light had been real, not imagined. Several hundred feet away, I caught a glimpse of it, just above the trees, turning away from me. My eyes locked on it and my body froze. The yellowish orb swiveled back in my direction, and for the briefest moment, the sickly light shone down, revealing something huge and twisted. When it moved forward toward me again, I stumbled back, tripping over Steve and falling with my face close to the fire. 
He yelped and cursed as I threw handfuls of dirt onto the small blaze. John and Ben woke, and they all questioned me. I pointed at the gently arcing light over the trees and tried to quiet them while still dousing the fire with dirt. As they all turned toward the lone light, a hush descended over the camp, and I finally covered the last of the flame. Thick, acrid smoke billowed up from the fire pit, stinging my eyes and sinuses. The single light doubled and then tripled in my vision as my eyes watered. Steve got up, fanning at the smoke, but he never looked away from the odd hovering light. With his voice barely above a whisper, he asked, It's the ghost light everybody talks about, isn't it? Dean? No. That thing has a body. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I saw it. Fumbling beside my bedroll, I found my pack and shouldered it. We need to go. We headed down the slope, walking quietly, moving cautiously and intending to follow the mountain down to the flat where our trucks were waiting. After five minutes, though, John pointed out the light had disappeared. For another five minutes, we stayed quiet and listened. An owl hooted tentatively and farther away than before. I held my breath, straining my ears to pick up the sound of feet moving stealthily in the blackness. The second owl, closer, called out. It was louder, and I didn't like the way my scalp tightened. Goose flesh crawled down my arms. Five minutes turned into ten and then fifteen. The coyotes yipped and no lights appeared over the treetops. The guys, although they had witnessed the same glowing light, convinced me it had been nothing more than the harmless ghost lights we had heard stories about for years. Ben reminded us this could be our last adventure together, and if we turned tail and ran away like chicken shits, we were no better than the ones who told us the stories. Those people we had laughed at for letting a light scare them stupid. We sat with our backs against the trees and talked quietly. We even laughed a little, but it always carried the undertone of fear. And just before sunrise, the forest came to life with the scurrying and chittering of animals. As first light blushed the face of the land, we were moving again, trekking toward the summit. 
The junipers and pinion trees gave way to mountain mahogany and white firs. The soil thinned, and we walked on long stretches of craggy rocks. Thickets of orange-yellow flowering shrubs burst out of the harsh landscape, clinging and thriving in a place where strength and stubbornness of will were the only sustenance. At the top, we sat, enjoying the view of the Ruby Mountain Range. The East Humboldt Range, the Pequop, and the Goshoot Mountains were visible, but I thought the Ruby Range was the prettiest. The summit had a prominence of about 4,000 feet, and we took the time to wander over every foot, checking the views and feeling like we were on top of the world. Ben found the benchmark and acted as if it were a stash of gold doubloons, the earliest dated one from 1929. One warned of a $250 fine for disturbing it. The bristlecone pines, the oldest species of tree in the world, raised their twisted dead-looking arms toward the cloud-painted blue of the sky. I was more interested in them and the view of the Ruby Range than anything else. The bristlecones lent an otherworldly feel to the place. It was easy to imagine that ancient dark creatures roamed the mountain that night, and at the first light of day, they were transformed into the twisted semblances of trees I was currently adding to my phone's camera roll. About three or, I don't know, maybe four hundred feet north of the summit, in a flat, Antenna arrays, solar panels, and various maintenance sheds wrecked the ambiance of the place. Our phones had no signal, even on the summit. Maybe it was the lead-silver ore in the mountain. Maybe it had something to do with those antenna. Or spruce, like so many other mountains in the world, resisted such technology. We took our pictures, had our fill of the scenery ate spam and pork and beans, and then headed down the western slope. We reached the ghost town before sunset, and after hundreds of more pictures, we decided to sleep in one of the old structures. It was an amazing condition to be so old, and after the previous night, we had all had enough of sleeping under the stars. We had no fire that night. The crickets sang loud enough to muffle any sounds from the encroaching forest. It put me on edge, but the others, again, stretched out and fell asleep with little trouble. I laid on my blanket, but I kept my eyes on a window. I could see up the slope a good way. As I started to drowse, my eyes jittered under heavy lids. The hum returned and mingled with the crickets. Then the crickets stopped chirping and the hum grew louder. My eyes shot open and I sat bolt upright. Before I saw the first faint glow of light, I woke up the guys. As a group, we stood outside at the corner of the shack, watching as the thing bobbed barely above the trees. Growing brighter, it moved steadily in our direction. Steve held up his phone and snapped pictures. The ore moved closer and I was joined by a second ball of light. Then a third. Steve continued to snap pictures. John held up his phone, dropped it twice, and 
then snapped a shot of the approaching creatures. The flash was like lightning, sudden, bright enough to temporarily blind, and it drew the attention of all three ghost lights. Now, John was cursing as he was fiddling with his phone, I assume trying to shut off the flash. The lights moved closer and with more determined speed. Three yellow lights trained on us, somehow seeing us in the dark. I thought they moved silently except for the hum that accompanied their appearance, but as they floated closer, we all heard the soft drag whomp of giant footfalls, followed by squeaking. It was the same sound the old wooden stairs of my grandmother's house used to make when I tried to sneak down to the kitchen to sneak another cookie after everyone had gone to bed. Now, chuckling, Steve ambled away from us and closer to those things that squeaked and hummed and were definitely not just ghost lights. We tried to call him back, but he waved us off. And finally, all I could make out was the faint glow from his phone's backlight. He held it above his head and moved into the tree line. My first moment of true horror happened when the light descended through the canopy of pine branches and its dim light shone down on Steve and its twisted body. Living roots and bare branches all twined around each other, writhing, bulging, hideous, formed a crude body replete with arms, hands, legs, and feet. The light regarded Steve, and he it. The moment stretched for what seemed to be hours as we watched. I'm pretty sure John and Ben were feeling the same stupefied paralysis I was because none of us did more than just breathe. The pale amber glow washed over him, making him look gaunt. It was David and Goliath facing off, sizing each other up. Except Steve didn't even have a sling or a rock to defend himself with. Then Steve's voice, small and trembling, broke the silence. What are you? His hands had dropped to his sides. The other two lights remained in the distance, scanning the slope in random patterns, edging closer to us but not homing in on the activity. I wanted to drag Steve back to us and away from that abomination, but... I didn't want that sick room light to touch me. Imagining it, it had a weight and an intelligence, a physical thing that could caress or kill at a whim. The hum slid up an octave and then wavered back down, filling the air with tiny vibrations which played over my skin. John gasped and slapped at his arms. I turned and grabbed him by the shoulders. Noise might draw the attention of that thing. Rile it up, and then we'd all be dead. Ben stood slack-jawed and with his back against the rough wood of the shack, looking like a photograph I once saw of a man in the early 1900s who had been labeled an imbecile. All he was missing was the drool. The hum changed again. It was trying to imitate Steve's voice, and he laughed. 
The hum repeated the laughter. Steve turned to us. Guys? I think it's okay. And he gave us a thumbs up. As he turned back to the monster whose face was made of swirling light, it raised a finger to point at Steve, as if laughing at him. The finger elongated, shot through Steve's chest, and pinned him to the ground like a bug on a display board. He looked down at the gnarly branch in his chest, gurgled once, and then his head lolled back on his neck until he was almost looking at us from that upside-down position. The thing did its imitation laugh again, and the other protuberances of its hand wrapped around Steve, pulling him up, up, up toward the source of light, toward its no-face. The other two creatures closed rank and tried to get the fresh kill, but the one holding Steve's dead body was the largest, and it fought them off with ease, almost as if it were swatting away bothersome flies. A tea kettle shriek ramped up beside me, and the monsters turned their beaming faces toward us. John, eyes wide and filled with terrible knowledge, pointed at Steve, dangling close to the swirling light of his murderer. It killed Steve, word shrouded in a tea kettle scream. I tackled him, pushed him back inside the building with my hand clamped over his mouth. He struggled and batted me, still screaming under my hand, and I hissed at Ben to help me, but I was left to deal with John on my own. Ben had completely disappeared. John settled and a scream turned into pitiful whimpers. Looking back outside, I saw the two smaller creatures moving toward the shack, drawn by the screams, and I tried to haul John to his feet. He had seen them too. Lying on his back, he pedaled his feet uselessly against the floor and punched the air with his fists. As the dim light crept through the opening, I grabbed the flailing arm and dragged him over the floor to the empty window facing the mountain. He couldn't get to his feet even with my help. He just kept whimpering and flailing with his eyes locked on those terrible approaching lights. I leapt out the window, leaned in, and grabbed John under the arms and began dragging him backward up the short stint of wall, using my weight to leverage him up. I begged him to help me, then I cursed him and threatened. The thundering crash and the sound of rending wood stymied me. Most of the shack disappeared, flattened by the nameless things hunting us. If I hadn't stopped for that split second... If I had continued pulling my friend out of that opening, he might have lived. But I didn't. I stopped. I did pause to gawk up at the horrendous and total destruction of the building. A huge orb appeared in front of John and his scream stopped. His body went limp, and I couldn't hold on to him. 
He slid into a sitting position on the floor as the round light drew closer, its hum climbing the octave scale until it was piercing. I grappled at John's shirt, hooking my fingers into it. The light enveloped him and touched my arms and face. I had been right. It was a physical sensation of a thousand eels squirming over my skin. When the first brand shot forward like a spear and pierced John's chest, his feet jerked a few inches off of the floor and then thumped dully back down, pointing in opposite directions. The second slid through his stomach and the third through his neck, and it all happened in the span of about three seconds. And those three seconds will haunt me forever. The purring sound started to fill the air as it lifted John into the air and pulled him closer to the light. And for a moment, I looked into that light, unable to stop myself. My energy drained and I imagined... I could see a green field speckled with flowers and bathed in sunlight. The hum droned and drowned out everything before it morphed into birdsong. Swifts dipped and darted over the field and flowers. The scene expanded, filling the room, inching toward me. A hand clamped over my mouth and I was jerked backwards. The scene evaporated like early morning fog under a hot sun and Ben removed his hand and held his finger to his lips. He didn't have to warn me to be quiet. He pointed down the hill to another building, its fragmented remains barely visible in the darkness. And honestly, what else was I going to do? I followed him. One of the lights bobbed in our direction and the telltale whumping of its feet closed in fast. We stumbled inside what remained of a blacksmith's forge. Ben hunkered at the window, watching the thing outside track us like a bloodhound. Hiding seemed to be our only choice, but there was only the forge in the center of the room. Ben climbed inside, standing on the fire bricks, pressing himself into a corner. He was shrouded by the metal hood from his head to mid-shins. With the light closing in, I looked for a hiding place, and the forge was it. There was nothing else there. Just an empty room with scattered bits of metal roofing and decayed wood. Before I could climb inside the forge, the nightmarish glow pushed through the ragged hole where the wall had fallen away and arced side to side, scanning the room. I pressed my back to the side of the forge, out of sight, and held my breath. Tentacles slid over the floor, Reaching and searching and eventually finding the forge, rattling the fire bricks and scraping along the metal hood. On tiptoe, I stepped away, keeping the bulk of the forge between me and the spotlight. I moved to another, smaller, ragged hole in the wall, hoping the thing would give up and leave, but it didn't. As I watched the inquisitive appendages moving the fire bricks, Raised beside John like a snake preparing to strike it. I screamed for Ben to run. The swaying light stopped, the tentacles tensed, and Ben ducked to exit his hiding spot. The great ball of light appeared beside the hood, shining toward me. As the exploring limbs moved in my direction, I tumbled backward and out of the building. 
Ben made it halfway out of the fireplace, and the tentacles spiraled up and around it, locking him in place as it closed like a fist. The shriek of metal was punctuated by the explosions of brick and stone columns. I didn't hear Ben scream, but I was sure he did. Screaming, I scurried back until I hit a tree hard enough to knock the wind from my lungs. I bolted toward the ghostly track of dirt road and into the thickness of the pines, shivering violently. The world tipped and spun. If I didn't get a hold of myself, I would have passed out. The hulking terror didn't pursue me immediately. While it was busy, I looked about, knowing that there were other structures close by, and wondered if any of them would protect me from those things. The tallest one was visible as it nodded above the trees, wending its way toward the ancient ruined smithery building. I moved from tree to tree until I was on a flat stretch of ground again. All three lights pursued me, their slow, ground-eating strides moving them closer with great ease. Maybe they tracked noise, movement, body heat, or they had some twisted sense of smell that allowed them to follow their prey. The flat piece of earth ran out, and I was faced with a drop-off down a jagged, treeless bank. The first hint of the approaching sunrise cast shadows down, so I couldn't see how far the drop was. The lights had begun to move faster, and the hum in the air took on a sharp edge that hurt my head and prickled my skin. If I stood still, they would overtake me within seconds. I peered over the edge into the darkness of an unknown fate, and decided I was damned either way. On my ass, I scooted to the edge, took one last look back at the harmless ghost lights, and propelled myself over. Rocks tore at my clothes, ripped patches of flesh, and deflected off bone in a few places. I slammed into a boulder that tossed me sideways and sent me the rest of the way rolling and bouncing like tumbleweed. And finally, I came to an abrupt stop on a flat surface. I was on top of a sturdy, man-made structure. It was just big enough for me to lie on without falling over its edge. Vertigo robbed me of the ability to get my bearings and pushed my stomach into my throat. The world brightened a degree more. Unable to move, I watched in horror as my pursuers crashed and stumbled down the same rocky path I had taken. Curled into the fetal position, I prayed my death would be swift. The high, chittering, broken hum closed in and surrounded me as pebbles rained down over my battered body. Then the commotion was past me. Flipping to my stomach, I moved to the edge of my perch. Wonder of wonders. They had passed me up, somehow. They missed me lying there, covered in dirt and blood, and even with the sun now bathing the world in its first morning, gentle light. The last faceless creature disappeared under the wood on which I had landed. They had run into the face of the mountain. In the sunrise, the world went on as if everything were normal. Just a 
another day on planet Earth. There were no monsters running amok, killing people. The birds filtered back into the air, dipping and diving and gliding, singing their songs mindlessly, playing out their lives above me, above the bloodied earth. There was only one way from where I sat down. Suffering the indignities of the landscape, I slid the rest of the way. The cave was a black hole retreating into the mountainside, an impenetrable darkness that seemed to stare back at me. And I stood stupidly staring into that abyss for nearly a minute. I wasn't going to move closer, I had no urge to investigate. Turning my back to the hole, I hobbled a few steps in the direction that would take me back to the trucks, and then I stopped, searching for my phone. The sound of a whip slicing through the air spun me toward the mine opening. In the blackness, a yellow orb glared at me as one skinny tentacle pierced my thigh. It dragged me toward the opening. I clawed at the ground and screamed until my throat was shredded and I tasted blood. An inhuman howl blasted out of the darkness. The tentacle writhed and twisted for agonizing seconds and then was still. The monstrous shrieking retreated into the belly of the mountain. The branch had petrified and was still jutting from my thigh. Grasping the section at the front of my leg, I tightened my grip to pull and the wood burst into dust, leaving a gaping two-inch hole into my leg where the blood clotted with the mess. I should be thankful. The gloopy sludge dried and staved most of the bleeding, which probably saved my life. It definitely kept me from bleeding out until the ranger came by on his early morning route and found me lying unconscious only a few hundred feet from the BLM road. So, I should be thankful. Except now, almost a year later, I've started noticing patches of extremely dry skin. And the doctor just said it's eczema. Last night, though, I pulled a piece of the dry skin off my side and I swear, it's bark, not skin. And after dark, I sometimes hear the distant low hum, only to realize it's coming from me.